right. Well, thank you for being here today. Glad you're here. And thank you to all the people this week who gave me the, the happy birthday and, and birthday wishes. I, a lot of people ask me, do you feel old And uh, now that you're 40? And I say, you know, I still have a seven-year-old. So uh, check on me in 10 years. When I turn 50, uh, hopefully Zeke will be graduating high school that year. So uh, then you can check on me and see if I feel old, because I'm sure I will be. But um, thank you to everybody who's, who's wished me a happy birthday. I appreciate it. We are... Um, we have been and are taking the fall to study the story of the stories of the first Christians. We call them the first Christians because these were the first people after Jesus had been uh, crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. These are the first 120 or so uh, people that were believers of the Christian faith, first members of the church, so to speak. And... Um, their stories are in the, the book of the Bible called Acts because, quite literally, it is the actions of the first Christians, of the apostles, the disciples. And so what we said is we want to take the fall to study these stories because whether you're a Christian or not, and, you, and there's lots of documentation on this, but whether you're a Christian or not, what happened with those 120 people is, is unheard of. It's, it's remarkable that those 120 Christians... Uh, became a few thousand Christians over the next few years, and then three over the next 300 years became a few million Christians to where today there are now billions of people growing by about 45 million a year who are professing the Christian faith. And so somewhere along the line, everybody stopped worshiping Zeus, you know, but but this message of Jesus has continued to spread. The church has continued to grow, especially, by the way, in the regions of the world where it's illegal, where you, where you will lose your life for professing faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the places where the church and Christianity are spreading the fastest. Uh, most of the you know, historians and people who study these things say that by the year 2030, that China will be the largest Christian nation in the world, which is impressive in itself, but especially impressive when you consider that it's illegal. Uh, but you can't keep the church down. And you can't keep the spirit and the power of God down. And so what we have been trying to figure out, because we're in this season as a church of, of wanting to grow and wanting to reach people and wanting to make a difference and influence our city, what we've been trying to figure out as we read their stories is what did they do that we don't do? What did they have that we don't have? How can we tap into that, that magic, that power, that spirit, that, that thing that, that they had? That's what we're trying to figure out. And up to this point, we've read some remarkable stories about what happens when they meet together and when they pray and God's spirit and God's power. And we've read about miracles and people being healed and, and all of those things. It's been, it's been really, really special. But the story that we get to today in Acts chapter 6 that Michael read to us is not so much miraculous as much as it is practical. The story today is a little bit different than all the other stories because now in this story, they have to make some decisions, these, these leaders, these first Christians. They, they have to get organized. They need structures. They, they need systems. I think you could really kind of divide the world into two groups. There are those people who are organized and those who are not. They usually marry each other. It's usually the way that it works. 
And so in this story, it's not so much a, a medical miracle or you know, fire and power descending on people. It's people full of wisdom and the Spirit of God getting in a room, making a decision, getting some structure, getting this thing organized. And so if, if we wanted to boil it down to one word, what we are reading here and what these first Christians are experiencing is change. Everybody say change. They are experiencing change, which is not always what we prefer. And I actually think this message is perfect for us at Hope City because of where we are as a church right now. Let me explain what I mean. The first Christians up to this point in the story were experiencing miraculous momentum. It's really the only way to describe it. They they were spiritually on a high. People were getting saved every day. People were incredibly generous. Their, their faith was causing them to live radically different lives. They're selling their land and property and, and giving to the church. And everything was going right. And in a lot of the similar ways, that's happening for us as a church right now. We are experiencing a supernatural, miraculous momentum as a church. I found out last week, uh, Pastor Katie told me last week that we had and we have this semester more people signed up in small groups than we've ever had before in the history of our church, which is amazing. So many of you are a part of that. And that's just one of the signs that that God is moving. Like, yes, it's definitely a sign when somebody comes to church and, and, is, and is sick and they are healed. But it's also a sign that God is moving when more people are signing up for groups. More people are showing up. And that's what's happening in our church. More people are attending. More people are connecting. More people are giving. God has blessed us with uh, this building that we are sitting in. Now he has blessed us by uh, joining us together with another congregation. I was uh, just kind of smiling this morning during worship as Alan was up here playing the bass. I don't know if you've met Alan yet or not, but uh, Alan, his, his, his family joined us in the merge, and I was just up there watching him use his gifts and how that benefits us as a church that God has brought this together. It has really been miraculous. And these are the kinds of things that were happening for the first Christians. They are experiencing miraculous momentum. And so with miraculous momentum in the church, you might assume that everyone would be excited. Unless you've ever led a group of people before. Because if you've ever led a group of people before, you know that even when everything seems to be going great, there's always somebody who's unhappy. This is what's happening in our story today. The first verse we read says that, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, ding, 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 that's amazing. We're growing. We're not just adding. We are multiplying exponential. God is moving. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. There were rumblings of discontent. Now, I'm going to go ahead and preach on this anyway, even though this never happens at Hope City, okay? I'm going to go ahead and talk about 
people who are unhappy, critical, sometimes in a bad mood, sometimes mad at their pastor. I know that never happens here. We're going to go and preach on it just in case you know somebody who could benefit from a message like this, okay? What, what does it mean when we say rumblings of discontent? What does that phrase mean? I'm going to give you kind of my definition of it. I think it's helpful for all of us in all seasons of life. Rumblings of discontent, you can kind of understand it by, by thinking about it like this. Rumblings of discontent is when you are annoyed because things around you are changing, but you haven't changed yet. That is rumblings of discontent. When you are annoyed because things around you are changing, but you haven't changed to the change. Does that make sense to everybody? That wasn't convincing. Let me give you some examples. It's like this. Romans of discontent is like when you are maybe still living in your starter home with your family and you've had some babies or maybe a relative's moved in with you and so now there's more people living in that starter home and you're sharing one bathroom back when they built houses with only one bathroom and everybody's stacked up on top of one another and you're annoyed because the house that you bought that you loved, that was perfect. Now there's been change. There's been growth and you are frustrated. And so in your frustration, you murmur loud enough for your spouse to hear that you are ready for a move somewhere else. That is rumblings of discontent. You're annoyed because the things have changed, but you haven't changed yet. Or uh, here's another example. Um, maybe you've been working a job for a long time and you know you're capable of more. You know you're capable of earning more. But you keep showing up to that same job day after day. And while you work, you just kind of mutter to yourself. Anybody mutter at work? Anybody mutter driving into work? You're just kind of there doing the job. Somebody tries to convince you to be inspired while you work, and like the only thing that inspires you is thinking about leaving work. And so you're just murmuring, and that is rumblings of discontent, that things are different. You are a different person, but, but, but you haven't changed. That, that hasn't shown up yet. And so there's rumblings of discontent. Let me give you one more example. Maybe this will hit home. Maybe you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't deserve you, okay? But you'd rather be annoyed than alone, so you just stick it out. But you're always telling your friends how unhappy you are. That is an example of rumblings of discontent. There's just this annoyance. There's just this aggravation because you, you, you don't like the way that things are, but you, but you haven't made a change yet. These are rumblings, mutterings, murmurings, complaints, because you're dissatisfied. And in our story today, it says that the church is growing, miraculous momentum, but there were people who were annoyed. They were bothered. They were unhappy. And it makes sense because there were a, there were a couple hundred Christians. Now there, this has become thousands of Christians, which is a great thing. I'm sure the pastor was pumped. But anytime there are 
changes of that magnitude, there are going to be challenges. Change brings challenge. And this is true in all areas of life, but it's especially true in church, isn't it? There are a thousand different things that could bother you about church or annoy you. Really small things, you know, that, that shouldn't bother you, but they do. And maybe really big things. Like, for example, maybe you come into church and somebody is sitting where you normally sit. That's annoying. They don't know. You haven't put your plaque there yet, you know, that that's your seat. And if the church wasn't growing... That could be your spot every time, no matter what time you got here. But the church is growing. More people are showing up. They don't know. And you got to get here early to get the good back seats. And so you, like, it's gone. And somebody's in your seat. That's annoying. Or maybe, like, you got to park on the grass. You guys are the second service. So you got to park on the grass. And maybe it rained the night before. And so you get out of your car and you get a little mud on your shoes. That's annoying. And if the church wasn't growing, There'd be plenty of parking spots, but we're, we're running out of parking spots, so you got to park on the grass. Or There's a line at the kids' check-in, or the printer's not working. It's run out of paper or ink, and if the church wasn't growing, there would never be that problem. You know, just, just little things. You get here, and, like, the coffee's already gone, or, you know, there's breadcrumbs in the communion juice, you know, because, like, the, the more people are dipping, you know? And, and those are annoying things, but then there's also... You know, things that feel more significant. You know, maybe you feel more disconnected. Maybe you felt like you were, had access to pastors or leaders. As the church grows, it feels less like that. Or maybe it's the music style. You like a certain kind of music, that's not the kind we do. Maybe it's the volume of the music. There, there, there are all kinds of things that potentially could bother you. Things that you're nostalgic about that are passing you by. Changes that happen in the church. And with change comes challenge. This is what they're experiencing. People are frustrated. They're upset because when there were a few hundred people, the few distribution to the widows worked flawlessly, but now there's challenges. And so the leaders come up with an idea. Innovation. They, they come up with an idea. They're going to empower some leaders. Historians say this is the first example of deacons in a church, if you know what that is. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's people that are empowered to do the work of ministry. And then it says this in verse 5. So they come up with this idea they're going to empower uh, these seven guys. Michael read the names to us. They pitch this idea to everybody. And in verse 5, it says, everyone liked this idea. Everyone liked this idea. Now, I started my sermon by saying that the story today is not so much miraculous, but practical. But I take it back. I take it back. Because we're talking about a few thousand church members. And everyone liked the idea? I can't even get my family of six to agree on anything. Everyone to like an idea. And thousands of church people like the idea. This is miraculous. This is supernatural unity. Yes, the, 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 the first Christians were experiencing God's power and spirit because they were praying together and meeting together. That is true. But there is also this unity piece to what's happening, this supernatural, miraculous unity that they are experiencing. Unity. Now, I think it's important to point out when we talk about unity, and that's what I'm going to do for the, for, for the little bit of time we have left in the sermon today. When we talk about unity, and it says that everyone liked the idea 
That doesn't mean that everyone agreed with the idea. It just means that everyone was agreeable to the idea. I think this is a very big difference when it comes to unity. Sometimes we can think that unity means unanimous approval. That's not what unity means. Unity means I may have done something different, but I'm for the group. I'm agreeable to what it is that that we want to do. And unity, whether in your church or your family or your business, is less about everyone agreeing and more about everyone having a spirit of cooperation. A spirit of cooperation. I think sometimes we assume that if we marry the right person or date the right person or or we, we have the right job, that unity just happens. We'll just agree on everything. We'll be on the same page and everything. I'll never be unhappy at work. They'll never ask me to do anything I don't want to do. We'll, we'll agree on how much I should make. We'll agree on my hours. We'll agree on how to parent the kids. We'll agree on you know, where we're going for Christmas every year. We'll agree. And if we don't always agree, it must mean that I chose the wrong person. I'm at the wrong job. But that's not true. That's not what unity is. Unity is being agreeable, having a spirit of cooperation. And so what I want to do just for the last part of my sermon today is I want to just step away from this story a little bit. It's a beautiful story. They empower these seven guys. And it says in verse 7, that the number of believers continued to grow. And it says even some of the Jewish priests got converted, which is significant. It's almost as if the pastors and the leaders were like, dude, if they can get everybody to agree on an idea, this must be God. That's one of the prayers we're praying right now is that religious people would be converted and, and we see unity playing a part in this. It's a beautiful story. But I want to kind of step away from the story a little bit. And I want to... I want to give you what I believe are some of the characteristics of a church that's unified. Now, we don't necessarily find these characteristics in this story. I think we would if we had the ability to know about their conversations and what was happening while they were together. But just as your pastor, I want to share my heart with you because I want to experience this kind of spirit-enabled unity. I want to experience this kind of miraculous unity. I believe in a world that is so divided and so outraged that if there was ever a place where a couple hundred people could come together and actually be unified, that that place would attract people. Even people skeptical or cynical of the faith would be drawn to Jesus because of unity. I believe that. And so um, these are qualities that I want to have, qualities that I want to possess, qualities I want you to possess. What a church member of Hope City, what a, what a, what a church family member of Hope City would, would be like. And I'm going to give you these, and I'm specifically talking about church, but I, I honestly think that this is, this is great for your marriage, your relationships, your friendships, your working relationships. I think your boss would be pumped if you embodied these characteristics at your job. I think your spouse and your kids would Love if you embody these characteristics at your home, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends. And so I'm going to give you six of them. I'm sure we could have um, done more than six, but I, I want to give you six characteristics that I believe embody the spirit of unity that I'm praying our church can have so that we can really influence this city, this community. Okay? I'm going to give these to you, six of them. 
The first one, if we want to experience this kind of supernatural unity, is we have to be people who are prayerful. Prayerful. We have to be praying people. All the rest of these, these five more that I'm going to give you, come out of the heart of a prayerful person. And what I mean by that is, as I give you all six of these, you can look at it and say, I'm going to be that kind of person. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to be committed to that. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do it. But we say this all the time around here. What we want, instead of having to grip so tight to make something happen, what we want is the Spirit of God to change our hearts. And instead of having to feel like we force it, we want to feel like the kind of person who naturally exudes it. We want the Holy Spirit to change our essence, not just our behavior. Okay? This comes from prayer. So we want to be prayerful people. We're on a journey right now as a church to learn how to pray together. This is a commitment we've made. We want to learn how to be a praying church. And we want to learn how to pray alone by ourselves in our personal devotional times. But we also want to learn how to pray as a church, corporately, together, praying out loud, feeling confident, praying together as a church. Because that takes some practice. That takes some reps, you know, to, to get comfortable with that and to get confident in that. And one of the ways that we're doing that is with our midweek prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. We started this, uh, we've had two of them. We started it almost three weeks ago. And 80, about 80 of you, the last two weeks, have shown up on Tuesday nights, and it's given me so much joy. Like, I, I, get, I drive home in a, in a good mood, just smiling, joyful, because 80 of you have decided to show up to agree with me and to join with me and be unified with me to try to figure out how to be a praying church. I would invite all of you to, to, to be here with us on Tuesday nights because nothing will bring us unity like prayer. Nothing will bring us unity like prayer. And whenever, whenever I find a person who has turned grumpy or bitter or angry, and this is their normal attitude, I'm not talking about having a bad day or a bad week. We all do that. But whenever you find somebody who has turned grumpy or bitter or angry, and this is their consistent attitude, almost every time you have found a person who has stopped praying. This is true for me, not just other people. When I find myself day after day, week after week, with no joy, critical, cynical, sarcastic, bitter, angry, I've stopped praying. I've stopped praying. I've stopped being a prayerful person. And so if we want to experience this kind of supernatural unity, we have to be prayerful people. Let me give you the second one. Not only should we be prayerful, but we've also got to be optimistic people. We've got to be optimistic people. And I have to be honest and admit that this is not my natural disposition. That's going to shock a lot of you, I know, who know me really well. My resting face is just not, not very kind, you know. Um, I'm not necessarily the most optimistic person. This is a choice that I have to make. This is something I'm praying for God to help me with. But when, when I say optimistic, I mean someone who's hopeful and confident about the future. Because it's so easy to be cynical and skeptical. The easiest thing in the world is to see the problems but I want to be an optimistic person. And I want to be a church full of optimistic people. Not because every idea is a good idea. Of course not. But because there's nothing that God wants to do for us than those things that are good. God wants to 
do good for us. He is working for our good. And so, yeah, if we think about it long enough, we can definitely come up for things to be, with things to be worried about. But we want to trust that God is leading and guiding us and he's working for our good and for your good. And so I want to be optimistic about opportunities and optimistic about, about people. Listen, let's don't let this be a church. I'll make this commitment to you as your pastor, but we've got to make this commitment together. Let's don't let this be a church where we show up on Sundays to be angry about what's happening in the world to be cursing the world and damning the world and talking about how awful the world is and, 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 and unifying around negativity. Let's be optimistic. Yeah, there are things going how we don't want things to go, but we know that God is in control. We know that God is working. Let's be optimistic about the next generation. Let's don't tell our students and our kids how awful the world's going to be that they're going to be raised in and and how the, you know, we're worried about the future because look at these kids. No, let's, let's speak life into them and be optimistic about what God's going to do in their lives. We've got, it's a choice because the natural disposition for, for so many of us is pessimism. God blessed me by help giving me the most optimistic human being in the history of the world to be married to. It's like he knew what he was making, and he's like, I need to give Jason like a, a fairy to just sprinkle optimistic fairy dust in his life at all times. We got, we got to be optimistic people. If, if we want supernatural unity, if we want supernatural unity, let me give you an, another one. I think if we're wanting that kind of unity that we see in the book of Acts, we've got to be people who are not easily offended. Now, when I was working on this, I almost used the phrase unoffendable, unoffendable. I think that's a little optimistic, so I'm not going to do that. Let's see what I did there. I may not have the perfect record, but I want to be the kind of person who isn't easily offended. I want to be the kind of Christian who has a soft heart and thick skin. But sadly, so many Christians you meet have a hard heart and thin skin. I don't want to be that kind of Christian. I don't want to be that kind of pastor. I want a soft heart and thick skin. And if I could be so bold as to brag on myself a little bit since I put myself down in optimism, as much as maybe optimism is a struggle, this is one for me that I, I kind of feel competent in, confident in. And to pick on Andrea just a little bit more, this sometimes causes tension in our marriage because when she comes home in a bad mood, she just wants me to agree with her. Anybody want that? Like, can, I, can you just be mad with me for like five minutes? But I have this thing that I do, and I'm going to give you this. This is free advice for you right here, okay? Take it for what you want. But I have this little phrase that I use in my own life. And anytime I'm talking to somebody who is dealing with offense or anger towards someone, because what, what happens is we're never upset. We're, we're usually never upset about what someone does. We're upset about what we believe their motives were for why they did it, right? If we trusted their motives, believed their motives, it wouldn't really bother us you know, that, that what they did. But what happens is somebody does something to us, they say something to us, they don't show up to something, they post something, comment, don't comment, whatever. And then we're, we're offended, we're angry because we attach motives to it. So we say, well, they've always been jealous of me, that's why. Or they didn't show up because they were mad that, or whatever, we attach motives to it. And one of the things that I believe God has helped me to do and something I try to do for the people around me is there's this little two-word phrase that I use to try to help me be a person who's not easily offended. Here's the two-word phrase, you ready? The two-word phrase is, probably not. Probably not. 
which can be frustrating when the person you're with just wants you to be mad with them. But even when you're talking to yourself, you're like, well, you know, they, they did that because they want to, they, they've never liked me and they're wanting to, and you get done, the best thing you can do is to say, probably not. That's probably not why they did it. That's probably not why they didn't show up. That's probably not why they didn't say it or said it. That's probably not what they meant. That's probably not how they meant for that to come across. Probably not. Because you know what I know about me? That's usually not how I mean it. That's usually not why I did it. And so when we're talking about offense, I want to be the kind of person who gives the benefit of the doubt. I want to be the kind of person who gives grace. I, I want us to be the kind of church that believes the best about people and is not easily offended. Soft heart, thick skin. So that we can have supernatural unity. Let me give you number four. I, I, want, to, I want to be, I want us to be, I want you to be someone who is encouraging. Someone who's encouraging. It's so easy in our world to be sarcastic or critical. Matter of fact, you can make a lot of money and build a platform off of sarcasm and criticism. But I want to be an encourager. I want to find something to encourage in people. I want people to leave my presence and leave being with me feeling better about themselves, feeling, feeling more confident about themselves, feeling as if, I believe in them. I want people to feel that way around you. I, I want to be encouraging. Even when things, even when I could easily find a reason to be discouraging, I want to be encouraging. Every great part, every great church that I've ever been a part of, every great church I've ever seen or know about or visit or study, there is a spirit, there is a culture in that church of encouragement. They take chances on people and, and brag on them and believe in them. They even if the sermon's not so great, people are amen and encouraging somebody and telling them great job. Even if the singers mess up the songs, even if the, you know, even if the kid spills coffee on the carpet, even if something's not going right, there's just a spirit of encouragement. People leave feeling like they are believed in, feeling like people have their back. And if we want to experience supernatural unity, we've got to be people who encourage Find something. You, you, you think about it long enough, you will find something that you can encourage. I got two more. Let me, let me give them to you. If we want supernatural unity, I think we got to be people who are flexible. I mean this in more of the figurative sense, obviously. We've got to be flexible. And this is actually something we talk to our staff about a lot and our team about a lot. This is the phrase we say. We want to be flexible because not all good ideas are convenient. Sometimes, Great ideas are inconvenient, so we want to be flexible. We want to be flexible. And man, it, it is so easy to be upset about change in a church, isn't it? Especially Hope City. We plan in pencil. We knock walls down, build them back up. Two weeks later, we changed our mind. Or we, you know, realized that we thought we liked that paint color, we changed it up. Those of you who've been around a while, you know, like, we'll try anything, anytime, anywhere. And so we change service times, add a service, you know, take away a service. Maybe, you're, maybe your leader that the team you serve on wants you to get here earlier, stay a little later, serve more often. You've you got to adapt. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be willing to change. You've got to be agreeable. You've got to be willing to go with the flow. You don't have to be, 
But if you need everything to stay the way that it is, you will stay frustrated or feel as if you are being passed by or left behind because there, there is this need to be able to adapt. And it's easy to say when you're 24 years old and a senior pastor, and now I'm 40, and I don't like change as much as I liked it when I was 24. And when I'm 60, I will like it even less, I bet. My, my daughter Sadie has started to pick out some of the worship songs. And I'm like, what is that? You know? She's like, Dad, isn't it awesome? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Just want to encourage your taste. Um, and so I know it's easy when you're, when you're young and like you just want to be flexible and change and adapt. I get that, that as life goes on, it gets a little harder. I get that we have a little more nostalgia. I get it. But my prayer is that God would help me to be the kind of person that believes in the church so much that whatever the season we're in as a church, whatever's needed in the church, whatever we need to do to reach our sons and daughters, to reach our friends and family, I'll be the first to jump in. I'll be the first to volunteer, whatever it takes. I want to be flexible. Let me give you one more. Again, we're talking about supernatural unity. Not everyone agreeing, but everyone being agreeable, everyone wanting the church to grow and to flourish and to reach more people. What are those characteristics we need? Let me give you one more. The last one is we've got to be committed. We've got to be committed. Um. I think there's a really fine line that we have to be careful not to cross when it comes to church. And here, here's the line. When you're looking for a church, so many of you have been here at Hope City for a couple of months maybe. And when you're looking for a church, church shopping is the phrase they use, or you're just, you know, you're looking for a church. It's natural and it's right. There's nothing wrong with Wanting a church to do certain things, have certain things, and, 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 and be looking for, you know, you want it to have certain kids ministry or, or certain sermons or certain music or certain kinds of people or certain location or, I, I mean, I get it. I think that's natural and right. There's nothing wrong with it. But that can quickly, innocently become kind of a, a form of consumerism. And you don't mean to, but what happens is subtly the church becomes for you. you. You begin to view church as for you. And so this, this may be hard for you to hear. I don't mean to offend you. But the church is not primarily for you. Now it is for you, but not primarily. First, primarily, you are here for the church. Let me say that again. The church is not primarily for you. It's for you, but not first. Primarily, first, you are here for the church. This is what the Bible teaches us, that God brings the church family together, brothers and sisters, Christians together, and he brings them with their worldview and their personalities and their gifts and their talents and their experience. He brings us together so that together we can build up the church. This is what the Bible teaches us. And so what this means is that when you decide to become part of a church, you are committing to do whatever it takes to build and strengthen the church and to help serve one another. This is what it means. And so we definitely could compare it to marriage in this way or parenting in this way. That when you're looking for a spouse, you should totally be picky. 
You should like look for what you want and don't settle. Whatever you're looking for, you keep looking. But once you decide to marry, marriage is no longer primarily about you. It's about serving the person you've made a commitment to. And if it stays about you, that's going to cause a lot of problems in your marriage. It's about submitting and serving. Well, this is the same way. As a matter of fact, you've probably been to a wedding where people read Bible verses where God compares the covenant of marriage to the covenant of the church. That a husband should love his wife like Christ loved the church. Heard that? What, what that's talking about is that I'm committed to the church. Committed to the church. And this is so counterintuitive to our culture because we've been trained to cut and run. First sign of disagreement or hardship. My, your boss was mean, quit. Spouse stubborn, leave them. Coach won't play your kid enough, quit. Friend says something mean about you, forget them. Cut the cord, run. But I want to say something that's really obvious, but, but forgotten. And here's the obvious statement that we've forgotten. You don't know if you're committed until you have a reason not to be and choose to be anyway. Let me say it again. You don't know if you're committed until you have a reason not to be and choose to be anyway. That's, what, that's when you know you're committed. Because if you agree with everything or everything feels good or there's no hardship or no challenge, that's not necessarily commitment. That's just infatuation. That's just fun. That's just whatever. But it doesn't become commitment until you actually have a legitimate reason to not be committed and choose to be. That's when it becomes commitment. Everybody says they're a good friend. Okay. But you don't know if you're a good friend until you have a reason to not be a good friend, but choose to be a good friend. This is why commitment is a choice. Of course, you should change jobs. I'm not saying you have to work the same job your whole life. I'm not even saying you shouldn't change churches. I've changed churches in my life. I'm not saying you can't change teams. Of course, I'm, this is not about never changing, but it is about the fact that when you look back over your track record, whether it's at jobs or relationships or churches or friendships, do you bail every time you have a legitimate reason to? Or are there times where you say, even though I have a reason to, I'm going to choose to be committed? Because here's what I can promise you about being a part of a church family. You will find legitimate reasons to run. Somebody hurts you. Somebody offends you. Something doesn't go your way. Somebody ignores you. Somebody asks too much of you. You want to be a part of a great church? You've got to choose to be committed, even though you've got reasons that you could not be. And so when you don't do that, then you run to the next thing. And really what you have is uninformed optimism. You just don't know what you're going to have to choose to be committed to into that yet. What I am wanting, what I want to be, what I want you to be, what I want our church to be is experiencing miraculous unity, supernatural unity, but that takes commitment. And in just a moment, 
We're going to have the opportunity to take communion. We do this every week together. And I was thinking last night, you know, you're preaching on unity and attitude and those qualities. What, what does that have to do with Jesus? You know, what does that have to do with the gospel? I don't know why it took me so long to, to figure it out. But when we come to the table today and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, what we are celebrating and remembering is that Jesus Christ was committed when he had every reason not to be. That, that's what salvation is. That's what the gospel is. Is Jesus had every legitimate reason to bail on you, but he said, no, I'm gonna be committed. And he went to the cross and he laid aside his preferences, Philippians 2. Even though he had every right, he was God. He said, I'm going to set aside being God to come and to die the death of a servant, of a lowly peasant, so that you and I could have a relationship with God. He was committed. He was committed. And so today you have the opportunity to come to the table, take the bread and the juice and maybe today, as you are celebrating his commitment to you, maybe you would take a moment and say, God, will you help me to be the kind of person who builds up your church, who unifies your church, who's prayerful, who's optimistic, not easily offended, encouraging, flexible, and committed. God, help me to be committed to you and to your church. Let's pray.